we'll get caught up now. Thank you for um, letting me take a little break last week. I was wheeled in here for Sunday morning church, and then I was wheeled home. So that was that was good enough um, for all of us. So I was thankful for Jay. Um, and ironically, Jay has the disease I had last week. So um, we traded we traded out on everything. Um, so he got the short end of that deal. So this morning we're going to finish uh, module five. Um, session five we're doing the Davidic covenant and the new covenant and I'm excited I was afraid that uh, I was afraid that Jay would get through the new covenant but I counted on him taking some rabbit trails and he did so I'm glad I get to do the new covenant now so let's pray and then we're going to walk through the provisions of the new covenant our father we come to you this morning on this beautiful Lord's day And it's uh, beautiful not because of where we live, not because of our world, not even because of the weather. It is beautiful because this is the day that our Savior, Jesus Christ, was raised from the dead. And we remember this every single Sunday. And we gather with your people just like uh, the disciples gathered shortly after the resurrection. God's people yearn and desire to be together, to learn, to grow, to know our Savior. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning would further our knowledge of the Word of God, further our knowledge of the blessed new covenant under which we uh, exist and live and have our eternal life. So we thank you in Christ's name. We ask you to make this a useful time this morning for his sake. Amen. So what, uh, just a, a couple of comments before we kind of get into the New Covenant, because it's not super complex, it's glorious, but it's uh, in, in some ways not as complex as some of the other covenants that we've already studied. But what I want to comment on is, I, and I don't know if this is an American phenomenon, I don't know if it's a 20, 20th and 21st century phenomenon, I tend to think um, not, but we have generally in the church a a pretty huge disconnect from church history and we have a disconnect from our theological history as well i I think you go to the average um, american evangelical church and pull aside a member and do a a, a man on the street interview and get a microphone and say uh, what is your connection to the bible and you're going to get a variety of answers. Well, we're a New Testament church. Well, we're, we're Christians by the blood of Christ. And, that's, and those are good answers. Those are, those are right answers. But one of the reasons we put such a huge emphasis on the covenants here at Grace is that the new covenant, the church age, is merely one of, God, one of the pieces of God's um, redemptive plan. This is not uh, the ultimate piece. In fact, I'm going to show you this morning that the new covenant um, is not finished. It's really only begun over the past 2,000 years. And so uh, this is so important for us to understand that your salvation in Christ, your Um, benefits that you have under the new covenant as new covenant believers in Christ, they have foundations that are thousands of years old. They have foundations in the Old Testament. They have foundations in Israel. They have foundations in God's redemptive future plan for Israel and they're not disconnected. And what I hope to show you this morning by the time we're done also is, is that to somehow completely separate the church in Israel or worse to somehow make them one and the same or meld them together is really to do a great injustice to the new covenant because the new covenant first and foremost is about Israel 
And I hope to show you that this morning because we're, we're simply tagging on. We're, we're the, the, the wild branches grafted in to the, to the root. And so we should be thankful for that. And I, I think we'll see some uh, the relationships here and how Israel and the church are related, how they're not the same, and yet how we both enjoy these benefits. So let me introduce this just a bit here. And I don't have a lot of slides because, like I said, the New Covenant isn't super complex. It's just glorious. It's, it's the icing on the cake. Our biggest and best New Covenant promise goes all the way back to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And I want to read this passage to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I'm going to stop right there for a moment because why would God be telling Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant with you? Well, we have to place Jeremiah 31 into its historical context. The historical context of Jeremiah 31 is that Israel has trashed and decimated the old covenant. That they have not been able to live up to the stipulations of the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 27 and 28 make it very, very clear. God says, just like a good parent to a little child, If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And after century after century of disobedience, God decimated first the northern kingdom of Israel with uh, the Assyrian invasion in 722. Then he decimated the southern kingdom of Judah with three invasions, 605, 597, and 586. And right about then, Jeremiah is writing, because if I'm a Jew, I'm going, what happened to my nation? We're supposed to be the kingdom of priests. We're supposed to be the holy nation set apart for God. What happened? And what gives me any hope whatsoever? And that's the context when God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now, if I'm a Jew in shackles being led off to Babylon to spend the rest of my life in captivity, I'm excited to hear about a new covenant. I'm excited to hear about something brand new because the old covenant, in essence, failed. In Hebrew, the last word of our Old Testament is the word curse. I'll bring the land under a curse. What's the very first recorded word of Jesus Christ in the New Testament? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you have this hope given. And so Jeremiah 31, you have to remember, this is not Jeremiah preaching a sermon to a church filled with people dressed in suits and dresses and looking really nice and and feeling good about themselves. This is Jeremiah talking to a people that are being led away, that are being decimated, that are being killed. And he says, Behold, the days are coming when I am bringing the new covenant. That's glorious. This is a sermon preached in the midst of the darkest days of Israel. So he goes on to say, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Oh, good. Because that one hasn't worked out too well for us. It's a glorious covenant. It is a good covenant. God's law is good. It's just that we couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. So, so there has to be something different. Century after century of disobedience has proven that we can't keep covenant with our God. We can't even go two generations without going off into idol worship, going off into human sacrifice, going off into trying desperately to be like all of our neighbors, to be just like the world. We can't do it. And so when God says, not like the covenant I made, whew, that's good. So what's it going to be like? 
Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And I don't have time to preach a whole message on this, but let me just walk through a couple of highlights of the new covenant promise to Israel. First of all, there is a law that goes with the New Covenant. The New Testament calls it the law of Christ. There is a law. It is not that the law of God has been obliterated. It's that the law of God has been updated, if you want to put it that way. There is a law. We are not lawless Christians. We are not uh, those that, that push back against any sort of restraints against sin. We are under the law, but we're under the law of Christ. But the difference is is that the law is written on our hearts. That the moment you became a Christian, you had a yearning, you had a desire to obey the Lord. Now, did the Old Testament saint have the yearning, the desire to obey the Lord? Yes, but they didn't have the power to do it. And there, there was a constant fight between the flesh because the flesh was 100% in charge and reading the law. Oh, I want to obey the law. All of Psalm 119, 176 different times, the law is good. I want to obey. I want to obey. If we were to add verse 177, but I can't under this covenant, I ultimately fail. So you have the law written on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Every single time that phrase, that idea is used in the Old Testament, it has to do with residence. It has to do with God living with his people and people living with their God. And so there is a future element to that as well. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. You know what that says? That says that someday there will be a nation of Israel in which every single person knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. No more evangelism. No more need to say, you need to know the Lord. Can you imagine what it's like to walk down the street, to stop at a gas station, to stop anywhere, and every single person you meet, you can say, how did you come to know Christ? Oh, it's a great story. You can't believe what he did. Every single person with a salvation testimony. Has that happened yet? No. So what does that tell us right now? Up front, it tells us that there are future elements to the new covenant that haven't happened yet. That they're not there yet. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. What does that tell us? That tells us that the new covenant is fulfilled ultimately in the context of a normal society where there are the least and there are the greatest. There are, there are different strata of society, just like we have now. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. So we're familiar with some of those elements. And when we read Jeremiah 31 as a new covenant believer in the New Testament era, we're, we're familiar with that. That makes sense. It's so wonderful to uh, see somebody come to faith in Christ and have this immediate desire to obey the Lord. And they don't even know why sometimes. That's the cute part. They're like, I just want to do what's right. And I'm not even sure why. Well, it's because God gave you the Holy Spirit. And God has written his law in your heart and you desire to obey him and you have the power to do so now. 
So we're familiar with this. Now there's another passage, Ezekiel 37, 21 through 28. I won't read it to you. It's very, very similar to Jeremiah 31. But Jeremiah 31 isn't even the first place. This wasn't a, this wasn't a big surprise. This wasn't <clears throat> in these dark days of the, the carrying off of Israel into Babylon. This wasn't somehow, oh, what a phenomenal idea that we have a new covenant, that we be changed from the inside out. This wasn't brand new. There's a shadow of the new covenant promise that Moses gave. Going back hundreds of years before Jeremiah, Moses gave this in Deuteronomy 30. And I'd like to read this to you from beginning in verse 1. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Now, let's stop right there. How discouraging is this? God is giving the law once again to the second generation of Israel through Moses, Deuteronomy 28, all the warnings, the the blessings and the curses. And two chapters later, they haven't even gotten to the promised land yet. They haven't crossed the Jordan River. They haven't uh, been to Jericho, Ai. They haven't conquered the land yet. They haven't even gotten there. So let me put it in terms we can understand. You have a 16-year-old child, and you wrongly buy them a new car. Sorry, that's just my opinion. You buy them a brand new car, and as you're handing them the keys, you say, you will have great blessings if you take care of this car, but you'll have great curses if you don't take care of this car. And as you're handing them the keys, you say, with certainty of a prophet of God. Now, when you total this car, when you come crawling back to me in punishment for your sin of driving like a maniac, and when this thing is being dragged off to the dump because you couldn't take care of it, how's that 16-year-old going to feel? Oh, no, that would never happen to me. That would never happen to me. But Moses says, that's what's going to happen. Here's the keys to the promised land. You're going to wreck it. That's what's going to happen. So that's the context. Jeremiah 31, the context is they have wrecked it. Deuteronomy 30, the context is here's the keys before you wreck it. He goes on. He says, you're among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. What? We're not even home to our home nation yet. Yeah, we'll get used to it because you're going to be all over the place. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. Now let me stop right there. God just promised a timeless regathering. Not just whatever parts of the earth you're in, but whatever parts of the heavens you're in. What does that mean? He's promising an eternal Israel and to those who die in faith, not under the new covenant, but under the old covenant. He says, I'll bring you home too. I'll bring you back. This is a, this is a glorious promise. If your outcasts are in the othermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So has that happened yet? 
Has the regathering of Israel happened from heaven and from earth? Of course not. It, it hasn't. The nation of Israel today is just as apostate as it was in Jesus' day. It is not, it is not an eschatological nation. It does prove that God can do it. Um, no other people that's 3,500 years old has been regathered twice. That, that's never happened. But it, we're not there yet. So what will be the characteristic feature of this future time that hasn't happened yet? And the Lord your God, and now he's speaking their language using illustration from the law of Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. A changed heart. So Jeremiah 31 promises this after the car has been wrecked. Deuteronomy 30 promises before they wreck the car. And so you have the, the foreshadowing in Deuteronomy 30. You have the uh, future promise in Jeremiah 31. So that's the, the Old Testament background. I want to make sure that we're really clear. We have a deep connection to Israel. And we're going to look at that just a little bit more as well. There are two characters to the New Covenant. Make sure I'm on the right slide. Yes. Two characteristics of the New Covenant. The first one, very important. It's unconditional. Aren't you happy about that? That is very different than the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is a national covenant, old covenant, national covenant with a nation that was conditional. You obey me, I bless you. You disobey me, I curse you. The New Covenant, however, is unconditional. The New Covenant is based on the I wills of God. Jeremiah 31, I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. So the New Covenant is based in the faithfulness of only God, not you. Now, sometimes that is taken to an extreme to say, well, I have no covenant obligations. You do have covenant obligations. It's just that God won't ever forsake his side of the covenant with you. You forsake your side all the time. Thankfully, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're regenerate and you can't forsake it unto death. You can't forsake the covenant unto eternal judgment. You do forsake your covenant with him every time you disobey. But we praise the Lord that we're under an unconditional covenant. And of course, these two go together. If it's unconditional, then logically it must be eternal. And this is, uh, this is so different than the flavor of the old covenant, which was not ever meant to be eternal. Um, and by the way, just to be really clear, it's not that the old covenant failed and God said, well, I guess I got to go on to plan B. God has never had a plan B ever. Everything he does is plan A. If it seems like plan B, it's only because he orchestrated that there's going to be multiple choices and he already knew which way we were going to go anyway. So the new covenant is not plan B. This is not God going, well, that didn't work. Let's try something new. No, it was always his plan. So it's eternal, very different than the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. It was The Mosaic Covenant, if I could put it this way, was built with an expiration date. It had an expiration date, and that date was the date of the cross of Christ. So what does the New Covenant consist of? Let's look at the provisions of the New Covenant. It consists, first of all, of a renewed mind and heart. This is the doctrine of regeneration. And I would go back to Jeremiah 31 and point out one more time the I wills. There is inherent in 
Jeremiah 31, the doctrines of grace, the I wills. Who regenerated you? Was it a team effort between you and the Holy Spirit? There's no place in Scripture that teaches that. Who gave you a new heart? It wasn't a team effort. This was the Holy Spirit's work. Now, we get a little more information in the New Testament. John chapter 3, Jesus explains the doctrine of regeneration, that the Holy Spirit, like the wind, blows wherever He will. And there was no team effort. There was no synergism. This was a monergistic, a single work, a single act of God. And so, the first provision, the renewed mind and heart, regeneration... I want to be really clear. That happened before you asked for it. If you pray, Lord God, regenerate my heart. You know why you prayed that? Because he already did it. That is incredibly clear from Scripture. That is the difference between being reformed and not. Is that order of events. If you say, well, I had faith, therefore God regenerated me. That becomes a synergistic work. And now the I wills become we wills. And there are no we wills with salvation under the new covenant. It is God saying, I will. So you have a renewed mind and a renewed heart. And, and isn't that one of the joys of being a Christian in the church? All of, all of you former reprobates here, you know your former life. You know what you were like. And I know some of you grew up in the church. Some of you got saved when you were five. And the worst you know, thing you did was to lie to your parents a couple times about this or that. But you know your own heart. And, and some of you here have a much more uh, checkered history than that. But your mind is new and you're, you're regenerate. Uh, I read, a, read a, the account of a guy named Kenny McClinton. And I'm going to talk a little bit about him later this morning. But Kenny McClinton was in the, in the days of the greatest violence of Irish terrorists. He was known as Maniac McClinton. He, he would blow people up. He would shoot people in the head. Um, somehow or another, he only got a 20-year uh, sentence in prison. And in prison, the prison guards and the prisoners knew that Kenny McClinton really ran the place. The maniac McClinton was still in charge from prison. He was still conducting terrorist operations. Somebody gave him a Bible and began reading the Bible. And at first, he loved reading the Bible because he, he related to the violence of Goliath. He related to the violence of men like Lamech in, in the early chapters of Genesis. And he's like, that's me. I'm, I'm those tough guys. But as he kept reading he saw that those are the ones that end up under the judgment of God. And he repented. And Kenny McClinton, from his prison cell, he could rattle the bars and the whole prison went silent to hear the maniac McClinton give orders. And he rattled the bars and he said, just want you to know, I've retired as a terrorist and I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. And he was eventually released and he met a young woman. And uh, they, they got married. And McClinton went on to get three graduate degrees in theology and to preach the gospel in India for the rest of his life. That is a renewed heart and mind that is unknown to any other covenant. Only in the new covenant do we see this. We have the second provision, forgiveness of sin. I've never seen an animal sacrificed in church. 
I've sacrificed one on the way to church when I ran over it, but that was <laughs> different. <laughs> we don't do animal sacrifices. Anyone who says, well, we're still under the Old Testament law, boy, you got a lot of explaining to do because I've never seen you sacrifice a sheep. You've never kept Passover. Um, you've never brought a bull and had it sacrificed in front of the whole church. In Israel, multiple times a year, and in fact every day, but especially multiple times a year, countless tens or hundreds, maybe millions of gallons of blood was spilled. And yet it still wasn't enough. I want to be really clear about this. The sacrifices of the Old Testament did not provide salvation. They provided a right relationship with God until Christ could come to be the final sacrifice. Sacrifices for sin provided a right relationship between God's uh, nation and God as their king. That was the primary purpose. And, And yes, they confessed their sin, and yes, there was temporary atonement, but never anywhere in the Old Testament do you ever see the phrase, the once for all sacrifice. Blood was everywhere. It was everywhere. Now, were you able to be forgiven of your sin permanently in the Old Testament? Yes, but not on the basis of animal sacrifices, on the basis of the future sacrifice of Christ. Because the blood of bull and goats cannot atone for sin, right? The book of Hebrews says that. We learn this, one of the most important verses in all the Old Testament, Genesis fifteen six, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that he received the righteousness of God on credit from a Savior yet to be. And so from God's standpoint, Jesus is able to die for the sins of those who lived before him and after him. Uh, time is not an issue. What do we have We have forgiveness. And and I don't know if you've been in Christ for a long time. I don't know when the last time you stopped to pause on that fact. But the fact that God, who knows everything, has said in his word, he will never, ever, ever again speak to you about the guilt of your sin. He will never hold it against you. Now, he'll discipline you when you disobey. Absolutely. But he will never judicially bring your sin up to you. He will bury it. He spreads it out as far as the east is from the west. He drops it to the bottom of the sea. There were books, supposedly, uh, if, we want to, if we want to take that literally, and, and I do to a certain degree, there were books that should have had every sin you've ever committed written in them, because those are the books that will be open to the great white throne judgment. You don't have any books. There are no books. Your name appears in one book, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. And I I hope that there isn't a Sunday that goes by that you don't take a moment to grasp the fact that every single wicked thought, word, and deed you've ever had will never be brought up to you again by God. I, I can't fathom that. But that is what we have in the New Covenant, and it's, it's mind-blowing. Probably the most... Um, recognizable provision of the new covenant is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about that some, I won't go into it a lot, but the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is unique 
And, and God, when He introduces something new, He often does so in spectacular style. Acts chapter 2, the, the, the apostles, uh, you see them with tongues of fire over their heads. There's, there's this wind that's so mighty, uh, this rushing wind. Ironically, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is like a wind, and the Spirit said, great idea, let's appear that way. And so the, the, this wind comes that's so massive that thousands of people are all gathering to find out where this wind is coming from. And then the apostles are speaking in what is recorded as at least 15 different languages that they never learned, preaching the gospel. And, and immediately, the message of the gospel is just saturated in the message that you will receive the Holy Spirit. That is part and parcel of the message of the gospel. That you come to faith in Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be indwelt by the Spirit. And I don't know if I can even grasp that. I'm 5'8 on a good day. And this man is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You, if you know Christ, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this is not symbolic language. The Spirit of God has taken up residence in your soul. Uh, that's, that's mind-blowing. You see why the book of Hebrews says that we have a much better covenant than the old covenant? You have the provision of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. The teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jeremiah 31, 34 I will put your law I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts This is why you were able to read the word of God and understand it, it is the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit I get excited about this I got to go faster I apologize <laughs> Provisions of the new covenant all of a sudden now we get to something that seems a little strange to us material blessings to Israel physical blessings we see here in Deuteronomy 30, He will make you more prosperous. What does that mean? Money, land, stuff. And more numerous than your fathers. What does that mean? It means the promise God made to Abraham that your descendants will be like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky. Material blessings to Israel. Now all of a sudden you go, now wait a minute, that doesn't sound like that's happened yet. You're right. The new covenant is not complete. We're, we're, God's not done bringing it about. And I'll give you a, a really easy example. Peter preached from Joel chapter 2, immediately going to Scripture and the Holy Spirit enabling his knowledge of Scripture from what he had learned as a child. And he preaches from Joel chapter 2 and he says, you're seeing this, the Spirit of God coming down onto men. But what else does Joel 2 talk about? It talks about the judgment of God, moon turning to blood, and all that kind of stuff. The day of Pentecost was a partial fulfillment of Joel 2. It was the beginning. And so the new covenant isn't finished. It, it's not completed yet. Uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, writing on, on the new covenant, he says, This covenant then has to do with the regeneration, forgiveness, and justification of Israel, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with his subsequent ministries, Israel's regathering and restoration to the place of blessing, all founded on the blood of Jesus. Okay. We get the spiritual blessings. Those first four or five that we listed there, 
Oh yeah, that's you know I'm a, I'm I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I understand that. You know, I, I get that. And that's remember I said at the very beginning, we tend to remove ourselves from, from theological history. Well, we need to put ourselves back in theological history because we're part of a covenant that we enjoy those glorious spiritual blessings. But I, I don't know about you. I didn't get richer when I was a Christian. I didn't suddenly own a bunch of land. I wasn't given those material blessings. So what's going on here? We can't separate the spiritual blessings and the material blessings. The material blessings are, are coming. They're coming to us, yes, but not because of us. So who are the recipients of the new covenant? Israel. Jeremiah 31 is explicitly related to Israel and the new covenant. You cannot rip it out of its context. It is related to a chosen nation. So we get that. I've, I've, I've pounded that point home. Then the other recipients of the New Covenant, there's only one other people group on earth besides Israel, and that's everyone else. The Gentiles. So the New Covenant's addressed specifically to Israel, but the Old Testament says the blessings of the New Covenant are going to be universal. That we get... Their blessings. Gentiles were to be connected to the new covenant, but we don't become part of Israel. We don't become Israel and so forth. The new covenant, all it is, is an elaboration. It's a fulfillment going all the way back to Genesis 12, to the Abrahamic covenant. What did God tell Abraham? He said that I will bless every nation through you. And that's us. Unless you're a physical Jew... You're part of that blessing. It includes Gentile salvation. Very, very clear all through the Old Testament. Those promises don't say that Gentiles become part of Israel, but that Israel brings a blessing to the Gentiles. We have some Old Testament passages which speak of salvation and blessing for all the nations. I'll just give you a short list. Here's a few of them. Isaiah 42.6 says that Israel will be a light for the Gentiles. And this is, God is not changing his mind. This has always been God's purpose for Israel, going all the way back to Exodus 19, 4 through 6. I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To do what? To make God big in the world. To make God known. That was Israel's purpose. It still is Israel's purpose. Isaiah 49, 6. The Israel will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 52.15 The nations are sprinkled by the sacrificial death of the servant, that is Jesus Christ. Uh, Isaiah 2.2-4 two, two The blessings of a coming kingdom that Gentiles enjoy. Micah 4.1-3 The blessings of a coming kingdom that Gentiles enjoy. This is one of my favorites. And I, I still remember studying for this message I preached in Isaiah 19.25. Th- this is phenomenal. Think about the enemies of Israel over the course of their history. Who are the big ones? Egypt, top of the list. Probably Assyria would be the second worst because they, they're the first ones to just nearly decimate the entire nation. And yet, look what God says. The Lord of hosts has blessed, saying this, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. These are all titles normally reserved for Israel. My people, the work of my hands, my inheritance. Now let me ask you a question. If you believe that the church is the new Israel, or that Israel and the church are just mixed up, how do you explain Isaiah 19.25? It's pretty tough. 
Well, blessed is Egypt, my people. Blessed is Assyria, the work of my hands. And blessed is Israel, my inheritance. They are separate. They are different. The Gentiles getting their blessings through Israel. Well, there's the Old Testament. Let's just spend a minute on the New Testament. Just to be clear, Jesus inaugurated the New Covenant. We are celebrating this morning um, the inauguration of the New Covenant. Jesus said, this cup is the New Covenant in my blood. So was that the actual beginning of the New Covenant? We're splitting hairs at this point. I would say no, that's not the actual beginning of the New Covenant. That's Jesus announcing that the beginning of the New Covenant is coming. When was it coming? In 12 hours. It was coming in, in hours. Can you imagine? You're waiting hundreds and hundreds of years. Jeremiah 31 is written in the 6th century B.C. You're waiting hundreds of years, and Jesus says, and they didn't know it at the time, the covenant that's been promised is coming in hours. So that's not the inauguration. That, that is the announcement of the inauguration. Why would we say that? Because it's, the, the covenant is in His blood, which is poured out for you. When His blood is poured out on the cross, the new covenant begins. And that's the inauguration. The blessings of the new covenant were to be universal. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. That Jesus' blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 that we, are, we as Christians were servants of a new covenant. And so it's, it's a little bit ridiculous to try to put yourself or anybody else back under the old covenant. It, that, that really makes no sense whatsoever. But again, we are not the complete fulfillment of the new covenant. It is, I think, spiritual arrogance to say that the church is somehow the pinnacle of God's work. It is part of the pinnacle of God's work. But we're, we're following in the footsteps of great men of God who were Jewish. We're following in their footsteps. Robert Sosi has a great book um, called The Case for Progressive Dispensationalism. And, and we don't agree with everything in the book, but he's, he's, very, um, he's very objective in his understanding And he says this. Remember I talked about the material provisions? Significantly, nowhere in the New Testament are any of these material provisions of the New Covenant applied to the church. The New Covenant predictions of the restoration of Israel to the land, the rebuilding of the cities, and increased productivity of the earth are never cited in relation to the present salvation of God. This absence of references to the material provisions of the New Covenant for the present age leads us to several conclusions. First, the New Testament teachers evidently did not see the complete fulfillment of the New Covenant in the church as happening during the present age. And he goes on to say this, If the New Testament does view the church as the new reconstituted Israel, as is so often claimed, why are none of the New Covenant blessings regarding Israel's restoration and exaltation ever applied by way of quote-unquote reinterpretation to the church? It would seem reasonable that if the church is a new spiritual Israel and Israel as an ethnic people or nation is outmoded, we might expect to find some of Israel's material blessings reinterpreted and applied by the apostles to the church. Doesn't that make sense? If we are the fulfillment of the new covenant, then we should get all of that stuff. What do we get promised instead? 
In this world you will have what? Tribulations. What did the Apostle Paul say? Uh, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. The, the, the Christian's perspective is very otherworldly. We're, we're not here waiting around for God's provision. By the way, this is why uh, the prosperity of the gospel, one of the many reasons, is so heinous. Because it ignores the provisions of the new covenant as being incomplete. They're incomplete. So what does this do for you? Um, I'm preaching on this topic later this morning. What this does for you is this, this sets your eyes beyond this world and into the world to come, right? And that we're okay with, wow, my, my life is coming to an end. I have nine cents to my name. Okay. What do we say as Christians? Who cares? You know, maybe I can get rid of that nine cents before my kids get their hands on it. You know, let's just get rid of it. The new covenant is glorious, but you haven't seen anything yet. What will the new covenant be like when there is a nation of Israel filled with 100% saved Jews that are what, what Isaiah says, a blessing to the whole world? And we'll have a glorious relationship with them. That'll be a day, even during the millennial kingdom, when Gentiles will stop a Jew and 10 of them will say, tell me about Yahweh. Tell me about the Lord. So, um, I, I don't think we need to feel jealous. We don't need to feel um, second, like second-class spiritual citizens. We don't need to feel slighted in any way. I think we need to feel thankful and grateful that so long ago, God raised up a holy nation, gave them a covenant, and yes, they failed, but God will raise them up again. And in the meantime, before Israel's new covenant promises come true, we get them. We get to enjoy uh, all of them, and to a certain degree, even the material blessings. Did all of you have breakfast this morning? Do all of you have a place to live? Do all of you have all you need? Will you have everything you need till your last moment on this earth? You will. And so we enjoy those, at least to that limited degree. So I, I hope that the new covenant for you is not just something that you say, isn't the church age glorious? And it is. But I hope it's something that you say, I love the new covenant. I love the provisions. I love the fact that I'm regenerated. I love the fact that I was given the gift of faith. I love the fact that God indwells me in the Holy Spirit. I love the fact that I can understand the Word of God. I love the fact that I'm with a fellowship of believers. But boy, I can hardly wait to see what this thing looks like when Zechariah 12.10 happens, when Israel will look at the one whom they have pierced and they repent. Wow, that's going to be phenomenal. So we look forward to that day, and may it come soon. Um, I actually have five minutes for questions about the New Covenant, even though, as always, I told you everything I already know. So um, any, any questions uh, on that topic? Let's stick to the topic of the New Covenant, if we can, which is a big one. I guess that means you could ask anything in the New Testament, actually. Well, we were comprehensive. Yeah, Zach. <laughs> All right, so you said when Jesus died, that's when the new covenant started. Was it was the resurrection that have anything to do with starting it or like yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I, I'm being really, really precise that Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. That's a specific reference to the death of Christ. Um, but the death of Christ makes the resurrection of Christ necessary and an obvious conclusion to that. If Christ is God, which he is, he can't die. And so he, it was inevitable that he's going to be raised from the dead. So... Um, 
so yeah, we can put all that together. But it is the death of Christ that paid for paid the penalty for your sin that made it possible for the new covenant to be real. So, um, but we put them together. There's actually people who have big debates about what if Christ had died, but there's no resurrection. Uh, you know, okay, here's what would happen: the universe would come apart. Now, let's just put it that way. So that's a that's a that's an argument that's not worth having. Um, when Christ died, the resurrection was already a foregone conclusion. You want to know why? Because he said three times, "This is what's going to happen." I will be turned over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to torture me and kill me. And three days later, I'll raise from the I'll be raised from the dead. So, um, I, I'm being technical in that the death of Christ was the necessary beginning of the new covenant because it had to be. All the covenants are based in sacrifice, and this is the ultimate sacrifice, the only one that truly uh, made sense. So, good question. What else? Yes. Hi, Kathy. Um. Regarding the Middle East today, I had in-laws who were Arabic, and they may be professing Christians in their faith, right, with the Orthodox faith. But if there are true Christians that claim to be Christians in the Middle East and yet hate Israel, because there's a tremendous hatred of Israel, right, what does that work out with? How does that work out in their faith here? Because, You know, is it possible to be a really immature believer and not understand the issue? I... Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is listed as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Love of Israel is not there. It's not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a logical outworking of knowing the Word of God. But I would say that's just ignorance of the Word of God and having been raised in a culture um, that that is taught that Jews are second-class human beings uh, or as was taught in Nazi Germany, they're not even human. Um, I, I don't know. I would have trouble believing somebody could read their Bible and still come to the conclusion that I hate Jews, because God sure doesn't. Um, I mean, this is a Jewish book, right? And the only Gentile writing in it was writing on behalf of a Jew. So, um, and that's Luke. So, I, I don't know. Love of Israel is not one of the fruit of the Spirit, but if if you've been raised that way and you begin to get in the Word of God, if you're a true believer, you're going to change that stance pretty quick. Um, and if you want to get a little more sophisticated, you'll also understand that, uh, yes, I get really nervous when our government and any government is anti-Israel because no place in the Bible is that okay ever. Um, but we also understand that Israel today is not eschatological Israel. They're not, a, they're not a saved nation. They're still just as apostate. If Jesus was born in Israel in 2022, they would crucify him, um, ultimately. But again, it's just God showing, uh, I've done it not just once, but twice. And guess what? It's going to happen the third time, too. So, um, not a fruit of the Spirit, but I would have trouble believing somebody can, can hate Jews and love Jesus. That, that, I mean, Jesus is a Jew. That, the fact that here in America, too. Yeah, it happens here. It, it happens here. Um, I think a hallmark of dispensationalism that's important is a love for Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, a love for Israel. Um, there's a book. There's two books. If you really want to get uh, deep into this and you want to do some theological reading, two books by Barry Horner. Dr. Barry Horner, they, they go together. One is called Future Israel. The other is called Eternal Israel. And these are beasts. Um, Barry Horner is not an interesting writer. He's a theological writer. <laughs> so you, you, you read these with a highlighter and coffee. That's, that's important. 
But he makes a very, very compelling historical case in future Israel that the entire basis for a, any theology that mixes the church in Israel is based in anti-Semitism. And this isn't just some crazy idea he has. He's quoting people like John Calvin and Augustine and many other theologians and he traces this history. Now does that mean that somebody who says well the church is the new Israel is anti-Semitic? No. It just means that's the roots of that belief system though. And, and Horner, it's a, it's, the book is this thick and all it is is history and tracing this. Um, he, he makes the most compelling case that ought to be required reading for every seminary student and frankly every, every Christian ought to read this because you get to the end of future Israel and eternal Israel and you just say, wow, God's plan is phenomenal and way better than, than what I could have come up with. So, I think that was way off topic, but thanks for getting me going there. What, what other questions? i got time for one or two more. Yeah, David. Uh, just real quick, since we're in the New Covenant, where does this, this priestly covenant read about the biblical doctrine and the priestly covenant. I can't remember uh, where we are. Did we do the priestly covenant yet? Okay, good. Whew. So anything I say may or may not be... Um, no, that's fine. The priestly covenant in one minute or less. Uh, <laughs> Phineas uh, defends the honor of God when men of Israel are beginning to... to uh, mix with other peoples and do so in a horrible way when one man sets up a tent in front of the tabernacle brings a foreign woman and begins having sexual relations with her in this tent as an act of worship Phineas goes in and he uh, takes a spear and he spears them both in the middle of that act and God said impressive I make a covenant with you and your family for all time fast forward um Ezekiel 40 through 47 describes that during the millennial kingdom of Christ, animal sacrifices will be reinstituted, not for salvation from sin. Remember, animal sacrifices were never for salvation from sin. It is to redo uh, Israel's faithfulness with God. It's to give them a do-over for them to be finally the obedient nation that they wanted to be. There are priests listed, the sons of Zadok, who will be the priests during the Millennial Kingdom. And guess who they're descended from? Phineas. So that's just a little kind of side covenant, but it's a pretty big deal because that man took his life into his own hands and said, I will defend the honor of God. And um, so one of what I would call six major covenants in the Bible. So it's like an ordination exam. Thank you, David. <laughs> so we'll, we'll get to that, uh, I think, in a couple weeks. So any others? I keep forgetting. It takes longer to walk places here, so we probably better close in prayer. Huh? Uh, future Israel and Eternal Israel, both by Barry Horner. And uh, Barry, you, you've never heard of him, but the guy is just a phenomenal scholar, and he's, he's not an egghead. He's a pastor who just reads. So, uh, But he went away, like to, he went like up to the mountains for like a year just to write one of those books. I can't remember which one. But let's pray and then we'll be done. Thank you, Father, so much for this time that we've had together. We are um, brought once again to the realization that we are so supremely, supremely blessed. We were headed toward a deserved eternity in hell and the Spirit of God by the grace of the plan of the Father and through the blood of the Son regenerated our hearts and brought us into the fold of God's people. 
before we even knew there was a new covenant, before we knew there was an old covenant, before we knew there was anything, you saved us, not by works that we had done, but because of your mercy. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.